let me add my welcome uh, to that of Pastor Lawton and uh, remind you um, of the quote on the back of your bulletin. This is a quote that comes from uh, what is possibly the um, bestseller among Christian books uh, in the 20th century, Jim Packer's Knowing God, uh, calling this the Christian's secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. He says that we should take the following truths and say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus. He wrote this when he was in Britain, in Bristol. Anytime your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all, utterly and complete, knows it is all utterly and completely true. And the six things that you should remind yourself of are, I am a child of God, God is my Father, heaven is my home, every day is one day nearer, my Savior is my brother, every Christian is my brother too. Well, we come to number three today, heaven is my home. Um, I have a notion that you've never sung that hymn before. Uh, it's in our hymn book, Trinity Hymnal. It's in the section on, on heaven. And uh, these are somewhat quaint words from uh, the great hymn writer Isaac Watts. And of course, he's, you, you, the hymn was using the um, metaphor of uh, the Jews uh, entering into the promised land, and we are going to enter into our promised land, namely, namely heaven, and we cross that river uh, to enter uh, the holy land. Well, our text, and I'm not going to stick to it all that closely today, Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, some people have taken that literally, uh, that there'll be no ocean in the new heaven and in the new earth. I don't think for one second that that's what it means. Uh, There was uh, a cleansing bowl in the temple, a bronze bowl, very large one, for cleansing your hands, and it was often referred to, because it was filled with water, it was often referred to as the sea. And maybe that's what John is referring to here, that there will be no need for cleansing in the new heavens and in the new earth. Well, a man came to see me last week. Uh, I'd never met him before. He had um, called um, the hotline and left a message, and I said, come and see me. And it soon became clear that he was under some kind of stress, emotional stress. I think God may be speaking to him. 
he's a churchgoer, does all kinds of things for the community. And uh, after about five minutes, I said to him, let's cut to the chase. I said, if you died today and you came to the gates of heaven, on what basis should they let you in? And he said, well, I've been going to church all my life. And I said to him, the gates won't open with that answer. You need, you need to address your sin. And he said, I have no sin. I'm a good man. So I gave him a book to read, and I said, when you've read this book, I want you to call me back. But that's the question that I want us to be thinking about this afternoon. On what basis will they let you in to heaven? C.S. Lewis, writing in the 1930s and 1940s, when he was a professor at Oxford University, and he was on the BBC, um, on the BBC radio, he had a, a, a weekly half-hour show in which he spoke. Imagine, there's no way the BBC would let that happen now, for sure. But he wrote a wonderful book, Mere Christianity. It was his uh, way of explaining to the philosophical world in which he lived why uh, he had become a Christian. And he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's a statement worth pondering this afternoon. If you have a desire that can't be fulfilled in this world, it probably means that you were actually made for another world, a better world, that you were made for the new heavens and the new earth. John Calvin, in his uh, tour de force, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, in, and it's divided into four books. And in book three, which has had a life of its own, uh, called The Christian Life, he says there are three things that we should do in order to live the Christian life. One is to mortify our sins. One is to encourage the growth of the fruit of the Spirit. And thirdly, we should contemplate heaven. Contemplate heaven. Meditation on the future life. We should think about heaven every day. This is what Jim Packer is urging us to do. To remind ourselves that heaven is my home. I often put it this way, and you've heard me say it before. What happens five seconds after you die? Now, I know that the medical world... Uh, isn't that clear on when somebody is actually dead because of the advances in science. Folk can be brought back from what might have been declared dead a hundred years ago, but they can now be resuscitated and, and alive again. And, and, but let's get past that. You've been dead for a long time, several hours. What happens... What happens five seconds after you die? And Christians 
have a very clear answer. I will be in heaven. I will continue to exist. My soul, my consciousness, my self-awareness will continue. My body will cease to function, but I will be in an, another realm. I'll pass through I'll pass through that veil that separates this world from what we call heaven. Now, Christians aren't always clear in their thinking about heaven. Heaven is an intermediate state. It's not the final state. The final state is the new heaven and new earth that Revelation 21.1 alludes to and that Isaiah, the two last chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, and 2 Peter chapter 3 quotes uh, those uh, Isaianic references to a new heaven and a new earth. For now, for for a minute, I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about the intermediate state. What happens after you die, before Jesus comes back? Let's take... Let's take the story of the dying thief. I don't know what this man had done, but he confesses that the sentence of crucifixion, the sentence of death, the death penalty in the Roman Empire, was a just one. We suffer justly, he says. And he turns to a man that he has only known for a few hours. He's heard him cry, I thirst. He's heard him place his mother, Mary, into the care of his best friend, John. He's heard that cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he turns to him. This man who's been crucified next to him and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This dying thief who had lived the life of a scoundrel trusted in Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, there are various cults that don't believe in the intermediate state. They believe that you are unconscious in the immediate state and you, 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 you wake up in the new heaven and, and new earth. I think Seventh-day Adventists are among them. And so, what do you do with this text? Well, what they do with this text is they, they introduce a comma. I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Grammar is important. And biblical grammar is very important, and there's no comma in the Greek text. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That man died but he woke up in paradise. 
Paradise is the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh and, and that he had seen things that he, cannot, that he cannot disclose. And that he was taken, whether in the flesh or in the spirit, he wasn't sure, but he was taken to the third heaven. Paradise is the word. He was taken to paradise. We have, you and I, an immortal soul. Now, don't think like Greeks thought, like Plato and Aristotle, that the soul is trapped within the body, and the body is essentially evil. And so salvation was a concept of getting rid of the body so that you could be yourself in your soulish self. That's Greek. But that's not biblical. The Bible speaks of soul as life. In Genesis 1, the word soul, nephesh in Hebrew, is used of animals and birds. So they too are soulish creatures, namely they are alive, they're not dead, they're alive. And that part of you that constitutes life, your livingness, will survive the death of the body. You will still be self-aware. You will still be self-conscious. Now, there's a debate, and since I'm 25 days away from uh, retirement, I doubt that Presbytery are going to come after me. But there, are, there, there, are, there is a debate in the Reformed community as to what the life of heaven looks like. And there are some who are adamant that it's bodiless. Now, I can't, I can't imagine body, bodilessness. I, I can't imagine it because my imagination involves my brain. This man has written a definitive, unreadable book full of pictures about the brain. He's a world authority on the brain. And I once asked him uh, in the parking lot, with all the research that he had done, were, were doctors and scientists anywhere near explaining consciousness? And you said no. What a wonderful thing. Isn't, it, isn't that wonderful? That I could be hit by a truck and I could die, but I'd still be alive. I'll be in heaven. I'll be where Jesus is. Now, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, says, We know that if, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have, not we will have, but we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And that has led, because of the tense of that verb, that's led some to say that Heaven will include a temporary body of some kind. Well, when Moses and Elijah appeared at the transfiguration, Peter recognized them because they had a body. They weren't, they weren't bodiless spirits. Enoch and Elijah were taken up into heaven with their bodies. Jesus is in heaven with a body. A body of flesh and blood with eyes and a nose and ears and a mouth and hands and feet. 
So I like to think, and you can, you can disagree, but I, I like to think of heaven as having at least some kind of bodily existence so that we can recognize each other. When Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he describes them in their afterlife with bodies. Well, let's go to our text. Well, before we go to our text. No, let's go to our text. <laughs> Revelation 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the book of Revelation. What's the book of Revelation about? And uh, Dr. Elias Medeiros from Brazil, dear friend of mine, taught missions at RTS. He said, oh, it's easy. Jesus wins. And I thought, no, that's too easy. But actually, it's right on point. Because the book of Revelation is about a battle. A battle against good and evil. A battle that seeks the restoration of this world. The restoration of Eden. A battle between Babylon and ever since the 6th century BC, Babylon in the Jewish mindset was a term that says captivity. Babylon against Jerusalem and Jerusalem wins. The city of man versus the city of God. The great Augustine wrote a wonderful book called The City of God, describing, describing the fact that life in this world is a battle. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Now, what is this new heaven and new earth? What, what, what is it like? So I asked the question, you've heard me ask it before, and it's not meant to be trivial. Are there dogs in heaven? Actually, I'm asking the question, are there dogs in the new heaven and new earth? When God will, will restore creation to be what it was meant to be. Perfect. Sinless. Glorious. Are there dogs there? Of course. Everything that God has made will be restored. That's, that's what I think. Back to Eden. With all the beauty of foliage and trees and, and birds and, and fish. And saltwater fish. I, I know it says the sea was no more, but I don't think it's saying there's no ocean. There'll be freshwater fish, but no saltwater fish. I fully to expect to see, what are those big white whales called? Bold. Beluga, beluga whales. I've never seen them, except on television. There's a wonderful program on the BBC with David Attenborough. Uh, David Attenborough, of course, is, is a, I think, a godless man. He, he believes in um, everything is by evolution. But the photography 
And, and now today with drones, the photography is absolutely spectacular. And you see something of the beauty of this creation, even in its fallenness. There's still a beauty. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's Paul in that magnificent eighth chapter of Romans. That creation is groaning as if it was giving birth. Giving birth to what? To the new heaven and new earth. God intends to restore creation, release us from captivity, and to make this world a place of beauty where there is no death, and we shall live forever. I sometimes wish I'd learned to play the piano. I wish I could go home in the evening and sit down with a concert grand in my living room and just play something, but I can't. But I have eternity to learn to, to play the piano. It might take eternity for me to learn to play the piano, but I've got time on my hands. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's the great statement of the 18th chapter of Revelation as it describes the end of the end game of the battle against good and evil between God and, and Satan. And Jesus wins. Now, there are two images in Revelation 21 describing the new heaven and new earth. The first image is the image of a city. And in that image of the restored city or the restored Jerusalem, it's a, it's a synonym for the new heaven and new earth. It's like Jerusalem, the golden, but its gates are open. Because there is no threat. There are no enemies. Because they have been cast into the bottomless pit. Never to trouble the people of God ever again. The second image in Revelation 21 is the image of a temple. That the new heaven and new earth is a temple. Just like Eden was a temple. What do we mean? What does, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word temple? The temple was a representation of the very presence of God. The Shekinah glory was to be found in the temple. Do you remember before the fall in Eden in paradise? God, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You wouldn't have written that for a million years. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day because he's going to get too hot. No, it's, it's, talk, it's talking to us in baby language because 
We don't have the ability to understand God being present. But that's what it's saying. God was there. That's what paradise means. That's what Eden means. Eden was a temple because the presence of God was there. Heaven will be a temple. The new heaven and new earth will be a temple because the presence of God will be manifest. He will put his glory on display for all of us to see. Now, it'll be a place of worship. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, don't think of that as you're going to be in church seven days a week, 365 days a year. No, you worship God with your talents. Sure, you worship God when you sing hymns and listen to sermons and, and, and pray, but you're also worshiping God. This was, this was part of the Reformation. This was part of what Luther wanted to emphasize, that all of our talents are to be used for God. You know, it raises all kinds of speculative questions, and I'm not averse to a little bit of sanctified speculation. There'll be food to eat. Jesus ate fish in his resurrection body, so it's not just apples and oranges. Some will argue, but if you, if you eat a fish, you, you kill it, and therefore there's death. True? Now, Isaac Watts talked about flowers, never withering flowers in the hymn. I, I'm, I balked a little. I'm not sure about that. Will there be seasons in the new heaven and new earth? Summer, fall, winter, spring? Part of... God's creation, that's the way that he made it. If you plucked an apple and ate it, what, what, what have you done in the Garden of Eden? I have no answers to some of these questions. I think about them a lot. And I think you should think about them a lot. But there's a more pressing question. It's the question with which we began today. That if you died and you were brought to the gates of heaven, on what basis should they let you in? And you must have an answer to that question. And the answer to that question is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. That's the answer. You should let me in because Jesus died for me. He took away my sin threw my sin into the bottomless ocean, never to be remembered no more forever because I'm a child of God and God is my Father and I trust in Jesus Christ. That's the basis on which the gates of heaven will swing open for you and me. In this uh, ragged trashy world 
in which we currently live. Isn't it wonderful when you drive home and you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to live forever in the new heaven and new earth. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for me. I have no idea why you chose me and not another. I don't have any answer to that question. I'm just glad that you did. And I want to thank you. That's an assurance worth thinking about every day. And when you're waiting for the bus. Does anyone go on a bus? One. When you're waiting for the bus, remind yourself, heaven is my home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We are amazed that you should love us so. That you would send your only begotten son into this sinful, hateful world. To die in our room instead and satisfy the demands of divine justice. That we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that heaven is our home and we can't wait to see it. So hear us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.